Chapter Twenty of the Master Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by John W. Gray and Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter Twenty. Darkness had settled down upon Brent Rock following the departure of Locke, when a trim runabout drew up under the porte cochere and Dora stepped lightly out of it. She paused for a moment and looked about curiously. For some time she hesitated. In this house lived the girl whom in her heart Dora hated bitterly. What sort of reception might she expect? Yet Paul and his underworldlings had played on Dora's pride until they had prevailed on her to undertake the mission. As she looked about, all her old assurance came back to her, and Dora turned and approached the door boldly. Ava was just about to go upstairs to her room when she heard the butler at the door and a woman's voice asking whether Miss Brent was at home. Ava paused a moment. There was evidently a slight altercation between the butler and the newcomer as the latter raised her voice sharply. "'You will tell Miss Brent I must see her,' reiterated Dora. There was a pause, during which the butler was heard to murmur something, and then the woman's voice was heard again. "'Tell Miss Brent that if she refuses to see me, she will regret it all her life.' Ava was intensely interested now, for she recognized the voice of Deluxe Dora. But with her interest there came a feeling of repulsion— with which this woman always inspired her, and her first impulse was to have Dora shown out of the house. The very nature of the danger with which they were all surrounded, however, prohibited such a drastic course. Yet how dare that woman enter Brent Rock? Still, the very fact of her so daring pointed to some serious matter which Ava felt she ought to know. At any rate, there could be no harm to listen to Dora's reason for coming, and there would probably be much to be learned. Ava called to the butler, and he stepped aside, and Dora, all smiles now, and with her hand extended in greeting, advanced toward Ava, who ignored her extended hand. "'Need I tell you,' remarked Ava coldly, "'that I am astounded at your presumption in coming here?' "'Miss Brent,' replied Dora, "'believe me, nothing but my present mission could have induced me to do so. "'There are wheels within wheels which have made it appear that I am your enemy. "'But that is far from being the truth, as my present mission to you will prove.' "'Dora was clever, and played her cards cleverly. "'However, Ava was on guard. "'Please come to the point.' she insisted. Tell me exactly why you have come. Dora paused a moment, then replied impressively, I have come to save your father's life. Ava caught herself almost gasping in astonishment as Dora covertly watched the effect of her words. You have the antidote, then? asked Ava breathlessly. Not exactly that, replied Dora quickly but I can take you where you can obtain it. A man has arrived from Madagascar who has it in his possession. "'What shall I do?' 
almost wailed the poor girl. "'How can I know that you speak the truth?' Dora's voice now assumed a cold decisiveness. "'That is for you to decide,' she said merely. "'Refuse to come with me, and your father will surely die of his madness. Consent, and he may live.' Eva could hesitate no longer. Bidding Dora wait, she ran up the stairs, returning in a few moments garbed for the street. They left the house together, but not before the butler had surreptitiously slipped a large automatic into Ava's handbag. In the Chinese temple, or Joss House, the last devotee had departed. The hanging lights had been dimmed, and now the fantastic shapes with which the place was decorated seen in the subdued light, stood out in all their shadowy weirdness. From the raised days the seven-handed god assumed an added majesty and awfulness, while, deep-seated as though from a smoldering cauldron, two points of fire gleamed from the god's eyes with utmost malevolence. Slowly a panel in the wall slid back, and the bestial visage of the strangler peered out. After making sure that there was no one about, with noiseless tread he glided into the temple. Like a shadow, a second figure, that of a Chinaman, followed him. The two made a complete circuit of the temple, stopping now and again to examine some object which arrested their attention. Then, as if by a prearranged signal, they both prostrated themselves before the fire-god. After making many obeisances they got to their feet and, as mysteriously as they entered, slipped away in the same manner that they had come. A panel closed behind them, but not the same panel. The inner room in which they now found themselves was divided by a partition that extended a few feet out into the temple room itself. This room was vividly painted with weird figures depicting Chinese forms of torture, a veritable charnel-house of what in Europe would be called the Dark Ages. There were plenty of evidences that, at no very distant date, this chamber had been in use to punish horribly those who had offended against the fire-god or the commands of the tong-leaders. On one side of the partition was a large iron wheel to which was attached a rope extending through the partition and forming a loop or noose on the other side. The purpose of this device was only too apparent. Once the neck of a victim was in the noose, a few turns of the wheel, the noose would tighten, and the victim would be inevitably strangled to death. In a slightly changed form it was the garroting machine of old Spain. The strangler tested the rope, twisted the wheel, while his companion occupied himself by watching the effect of the wheel on the noose on the other side of the partition. Apparently satisfied that the machine was in good working order, the Madagascan straightened up and waved his companion out of the room. The Chinaman returned by means of the sliding panel into the temple again. As she left Brent Rock behind, Ava's fears increased. Speeding through the night with this woman whom she instinctively dreaded, whom she had every reason to distrust, 
Many times on the trip Eva wished herself back at her home. On the other hand, to remain inactive while there was a chance to save her father's life was unthinkable. And so, for his sake, she kept on and the car sped ahead. Dora, on the contrary, anxious to allay Eva's fears, was very voluble, expressing many sentiments which even to a young girl of little worldly experience were palpably at variance with the woman's character. In and out of the narrow streets of the city's lower quarter, the car twisted and turned, and at last entered gaily decked Chinatown, where it came to a halt. If Eva was afraid before, she was now doubly so. The strange oriental faces which seemed to leer at her from street and curb seemed to be almost of another world, and she thought of the many tales she had heard of their treachery and cunning. Dora, sensing what was passing through her mind, kept up a patter of small talk as she urged Eva forward. By another entrance than the one that led through the Chinese curio shop, they entered the Joss house and came to the worshipping room of the temple. Eva gazed fearfully about her now at all the fantastic decorations with which she was surrounded. Her only comfort was the handle of the automatic that the butler had pressed on her as she was leaving home. "'This Madagascan with the antidote,' asked Eva tremulously. "'Where is he?' "'Don't worry, dearie,' quieted Dora. "'Wait a moment here, and I will bring him.' Dora turned on her heel and left the temple by the door leading into the beautiful lounging-room beyond. Eva stood transfixed by the solemn awfulness of the place and the grim visage of the fire-god. Why had she been brought to such a place? What new terrors awaited her here? She seemed alone, yet was she? She felt a thousand eyes regarding her, as though a thousand dangers lurked to destroy her just beyond those fearful walls. She was staring now at the god. What made his eyes gleam so banefully? She thought she heard a sound. Was the wall at the right of the statue moving, or was it merely her heightened imagination? Fascinated, she watched. Yes, she was sure now. Slowly, slowly a portion of that wall was actually sliding back. Now she saw a hand. Then an arm followed. With a slow, gliding movement that even to Eva's strained ears was noiseless, a man, his back toward her, slid into the room. Eva, shrinking back, wanted to shriek. But instead she whipped out the automatic and in an instant had the man covered. The man was still evidently unconscious of her presence. But suddenly he must have heard Eva move for he wheeled around, and instinctively his hands went above his head. As for Eva, the cry that she had suppressed at his appearance was suppressed no longer, for the man whom she held at her mercy was Locke. "'How did you come here?' gasped Eva. Hurriedly he told her his story, 
how he felt that the clue that he would lead to the unraveling of this mystery was now to be found in Chinatown, how he had made his way, therefore, to the Chinese quarter, how he had tracked the Madagascan. Knowing the futility of trying to enter any private place of the Orientals, much less their temple, in Occidental garb, he had waylaid a Chinaman in an alley, had stripped him, and had changed clothes with him. Disguised thus, Locke had managed to enter, to observe, and was only now on his way to summon assistance. For he had decided to have the place raided. Only now he was stricken almost dumb with astonishment at being confronted by Eva. There was no time for more. Before Eva could explain her own presence there, the door burst open, the panels slid back, and a horde of emissaries and Chinamen swarmed about them. Eva fired her automatic again and again, but could not stay the rush. Locke fought with the courage of despair, but they were too many and soon bore him down. As they carried Locke into the chamber of torture, the last thing he saw was Eva surrounded by her foes who were closing in on the poor girl. Towering above them all, he saw the gigantic form of the automaton. In the torture chamber, Locke was shackled hand and foot to the partition, while the noose of the garroting machine was placed about his neck. The Madagascan supervised this work, then waved the emissaries out of the room. They were alone there now, these two, the professional murderer and his victim. With a sneer, the Madagascan turned and went to the other side of the partition, where the wheel was by which the noose was tightened, strangling the victim. But the strangler little knew with whom he had to deal, for already Locke was struggling at his shackles. With almost incredible dexterity, Locke succeeded in loosening them, one after the other, so that as the Madagascan started to turn the wheel, Locke, with a marvelous effort, bracing his feet against the wall and grasping the staples to which the shackles had been attached, managed to pinwheel his body around and around as the strangler turned the iron wheel that tightened the noose which was to stifle out his life. Fortunately, the Madagascan turned slowly, so that Locke managed to turn his body faster than the wheel was being turned, thus gaining on the noose and at each revolution loosening it a trifle. Another quick turn of his body, the pressure against his neck had become less. Yet another complete circle, and tearing at the noose he managed to get his head free. It was the work of only an instant to dash around the partition and beat the strangler to the floor. Another instant and he had torn back the panel into the temple. The sight that confronted him was sickening. Two fiends were holding Eva close to the floor, while now from the fire-god's eyes a blinding glare of flame blazed forth, the two rays converging and scorching the very ground as they traveled slowly nearer and nearer in their fatal focus to the helpless girl. With a wild shout, Locke charged on them all. Taken by surprise, the brutes holding Eva were easy to handle, for the others had gone. 
Fortunately, the automatic which Eva had been carrying was lying, neglected, on the floor. Locke snatched it up, and shooting one of the thugs, managed to cover the other. Half supporting Eva, he retreated through the torture chamber into an outer room. There was no time to lose. Already the alarm had been spread to the other emissaries and Chinamen, and it was only a matter of seconds when all the murderous crew would again be piling after them. Locke looked about in desperation. There was a window. He flung it open. Below, the air shaft or court was blind. But there was a balcony by which he could reach an adjoining low roof. He had no idea where it might lead, but any unknown danger was preferable to the known dangers that threatened behind him. Through the window he passed with Eva, and so across balconies and roofs until they came to a fire escape which they descended. In another moment they were free of Chinatown. Many a curious glance was cast at them, a young girl, well-gowned, and a disheveled white man in Chinese garb. Locke hailed a nighthawk cabman, and they were soon speeding on their way back to safety and Brent Rock. End of chapter 20 Recording by Roger Moline